Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest this week is Dr. Marcus Collins, an award-winning marketer, best-selling author, former chief strategy officer at Whited and Kennedy, and currently a marketing professor at the University of Michigan. The man has seen it all, done it all. I know that's a cliche, but he literally has. And he offers up, pardon the pun, lots of prescriptions for brand health and marketing success. Here's my conversation with the good doctor, Marcus Collins. Marcus, it is so great. It is purely my honor to have you on the CMO Whisperer Show. Oh, the honor is all mine. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. I'm going to dive right in, and I want to start with the book. Okay. And that C word, right? The culture word, which can be so, I don't know, misused or or defined a million ways some Sunday. And that's where I want to start at the very, very basic of what is culture? How do you define it? It's the perfect question to ask because it is a word that we often use, seldomly fully understand. It's esoteric in nature. It's abstract in the way that it manifests. It's in everything. It's omnipresent. So I think about culture through the lens of sociology, particularly one of the founding fathers of sociology. Emil Durkheim talks about culture as a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and govern what people like us do. It's a system of of what we do around here. It's a, it's a system, operating system, a governing operating system of humanity. And because of who we are, our identity, we see the world a certain way, right? That's why for some, a cow is leather. For others, a deity. For some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all those things, depending on who you are. And because of who you are, you see the world a certain way. And therefore, you navigate the world a certain way. What you wear, artifacts, what you do, behavior, ceremony, rituals, how you talk, your language, and then you express your cultural subscription through shared work, what we refer to, what literature refer to as uh, cultural production, music, film, literature, television, podcasts, pottery, uh, folklore, and brands and branded products become ways by which we signify our cultural subscription, right? Because of who we are, we don certain apparel. Because of who we are, we consume certain brands. And these artifacts become ways by which we peacock to the world our identity, our identity projects for us. And culture is the most influential external force on human behavior. We do things not because of what they are, but because of who we are and the way that we see the world. And as a result, we behave accordingly. Okay. Now juxtapose it over why is it also important for marketers? Yeah, because our job as marketers is to influence behavior. Full stop. Our job as marketers, marketing is going to market. And we go to market, why? To get people to buy, to get people to vote, to get people to download, to get people to subscribe, to get people to, to, to join, get people to attend, get people to watch, get people to listen, to get people to take action. And since our job as marketers is to get people to move, then culture becomes the Excalibur of marketing tools at our disposal. It becomes the most powerful force that we have at our at, at, at our grasps to get people to adopt behavior. Hmm. That's really interesting. So let me let me extend it into into branding, mm -hmm. right? And 
how the, the role of culture, if that's even the right word, role, how marketers look, use culture, what does it mean for branding and yeah. also the future? Yeah. So this is the perfect question to ask in this series of questions. So what's the relationship between brand and culture and what does it mean for marketers and how we leverage it? So this idea of culture, the system of conventions and expectations, it's also the, it is also the lens by which we make meaning. That is, we translate the world through our cultural lenses. Again, for some, a cow is leather. For others, a deity. For some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all those things. For some, a rug is decor. For others, a souvenir. For some, it's a place of worship. Which is it? It's all those things, depending on our cultural subscription. With that as a sort of backdrop, let's look at what brands are. Brands are vessels of meaning. Identifiable signifiers that conjure up thoughts and feelings in the hearts and minds of people relative to a product, a company, institution, organization, or person. It signifies, it has meaning. Well, how do we make meaning? Through our cultural lenses. Therefore, if brands are vessels of meaning, that is, they contain meaning based on what they signify, that meaning is constructed based on our cultural subscription. Therefore, Marketers have to signal meaning on behalf of their brands in hopes that people see the meaning that the brand is signaling and that there is congruence. Interesting. So now in terms of best practices, how do marketers tap into all this? It requires uh, a tremendous amount of empathy, a tremendous, tremendous intimacy to understand how these people make meaning. Because what you say isn't always what people hear. What you want it to mean isn't always the meaning that people have in their minds. Therefore, as marketers, we have to signal meaning in such a way that's congruent the way people see the world. It's a tough pill to swallow that we as marketers, we don't make meaning. We don't. We signal it. Right? We signal meaning. Meaning is in the mind of the interpreter, like beauty is in the eye beholder, meaning is in the mind of the interpreter. So we signal a thing in hopes that people say, oh, I see it that way too, and therefore I consume it, or therefore I use it as an identity project. But we, as marketers, we only signal. And the only way that we can signal in such a way that it's congruent with the way people see it is to know how they see it. Okay. It's time to bring in the the what I call the elephant in the room okay. for every marketer. It's two little letters, but it carries a lot of weight, and it's AI. How does AI and culture work together? Well, AI has many forms, as you know, but I think the thing that we tend to be most fearful of, especially as marketers, is generative AI. Right? It's the idea of a machine creating works, creating text, creating assets, creative creative assets. So what does it mean for, for culture? Well, you know, creative assets or any text are just vessels of meaning. They're vessels to be interpreted. So when we're thinking about AI as an engine to create cultural text, then AI has to be able to understand the conventions and expectations of said people. The challenge there is that it requires a tremendous understanding of nuance to be able to create the text that people interpret in the way it's supposed to mean. For instance, the word of the year, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is riz, right? short for charisma. But if you use the word riz 
in the wrong context, you use the, that word in that sentence in that way, and they go, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. To the people within the culture, it completely gets pushed back. And the idea of having cultural nuance is that it's so subtle. It's so unbelievably subtle that I don't think that AI as it is today is sophisticated enough to have that judicious understanding, discernment, if one may say, to understand the subtle shades of culture. So while they may create creative assets, sure, but cultural know-how, cultural understanding, it resides in the minds of the people who have great proximity to the culture. Yeah, and in preparing for this, I was thinking about, you know, specifically talking about culture, but then overlaying AI. And I know, at least in the early stages of AI, there is an inherent bias concern. Sure. That has to be addressed, obviously, across the board. But to me, it's even more prominent when you when you factor in culture. Oh, yeah, because people's cultural subscription, the way they see the world, is being made manifest through their code, right? So if you only see a cow as leather and dinner, then the way you would code a cow you know, arbitrarily will completely miss the nuances of what it means if it's a deity. And therefore, if you believe Kyle is a deity and the way it's represented in the code does not pay mind to that, you're offended. You'd be offended by it. And the same thing goes when it comes to making marketing communications. If you don't understand the nuances, if you don't understand the meaning, the subtle meanings that lie within the text, then the code that you create will be completely out of step. And when people see it, they'll go, that's not cool. Yeah. And they'll see right through it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, I write about this in the book, as you know, it's like, you know, Pepsi and the the, the ad with Kendall Jenner, you know, <laughs> like on the surface, we look back at it now, I'm like, oh, that'd be totally bad, totally wrong on the surface right now today. But I bet the people in the rooms, they weren't like diabolical, malicious folks. I don't think that those people were like, how do we offend as many people as possible? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> They just missed the meaning. They just yeah. missed the meaning. And they're human and they can see it and they missed it. So you can imagine that the person who makes the code who doesn't understand the meaning will also miss the nuances. And that that out of stepness with the nuances of the conventions of ex- expectations of culture will only be seen at scale when it comes to when it comes to the technology. Yeah, exactly. The fan in me, the the musical fan, which we'll get to later, but I know you you did work with Beyonce. Oh, yeah. Digital strategy for Beyonce, I think it was, or spearheading digital strategy. I I definitely, I know my listeners want to know more about that. And my first question is, where was that in her career? In the beginning, the middle, where did you come on? I would arguably say it was one of the best times to be in the Beyonce business, as if there are any bad times, but this is the best time because I got a chance to be a part of a team that was helping Beyonce become not just an artist, but become an icon. Like she wasn't Queen B yet. This was 2009. I am Sasha Fierce, that album. So I think mm-hmm. single ladies, put a ring on it. Think uh, Halo, If I Were a Boy, Sweet mm-hmm. Dreams, Telephone. It's that time. And I tell this to my students, I get such a chuckle out of it. 
I tell my students that, hey, you know, there was a time where people used to actually talk bad about Beyonce. And they'd be like, what? And I'm like, no, really. Like, there's a time that bloggers would, they throw shade her way. Today, that is sacrilegious. Today, that is blasphemous. But in those days, it, it, it existed. Like, the Perez Hiltons of the world existed. Mm-hmm. And Beyonce wasn't quite at the level that she is now, her queendom, as it were. And, you know, I had a chance at a front row ticket to that show. I got a chance to lay one small brick on the edifice of, of her queendom. And I think that that, for me, it became such a great learning opportunity to not only be in a space that was still nascent, the digital world in which we're operating, particularly social media as a vehicle for market communication in the way that we know it today, but to do it at such a high level with such a tremendous, tremendous talent. Uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was really special. What were some of the challenges, do you remember, in, in, in this the whole digital strategy for her? Yeah, so I think that there, there are a few things. One, the industry didn't really know what to make of this digital thing. In a lot of ways, it was like, is this just like another media real estate which is populate with messaging? Go buy the album. It's like, well, no, no, no. Like on social platforms in particular, this is about community. This is about exchange. This is about discourse and dialogue. You're like, what? Just tell people to go buy the album. What are you talking about? So it was mm-hmm. a, a really myopic view, an uninformed view about the space in those days. Not only that, but like, you know, it, as an artist, there wasn't a great want to be forward facing in their private life. I think today, you know, we know where people, we know what the, the kind of toilet paper people use. We know all the things because there's so much transparency with today's artists. But at that time, there was a reluctance to to want to be as open, right? You know, we had a we had a Twitter handle for Beyonce. And I remember I started, it was like 600,000 people and she hadn't tweeted not once. Mm. Just 600,000 people just waiting for anything. Just please say something, you know, lined up for it. And at the time, she's like, no, no, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. You know, that she's much more open now, but even now she's still pretty opaque. But the idea was like, th- th- that was a challenge. It's like, how do you navigate a space that requires some vulnerability in an industry that didn't want to be vulnerable? Big, big, big challenge. And this was the wild, wild west. There were no case studies, like case studies are being made daily. There weren't like, you know, sort of, I don't even want to call them best practices, something like that phrase. There, there was, no, there were no footprints in the snow yeah to follow yeah. <laughs> the landmines were everywhere that's right. that's right that's right yeah it's fascinating and i know you're being from detroit so you're automatically a motown fan absolutely and one of my dearest friends is kerry gordy who's the son of the motown founder barry gordy mm-hmm. and it's interesting to juxtapose over because he tells stories of when he used to manage Prince and his record label and Rick James and how back in his day, how you had to get the word out about a given record or album. You literally had to go to you know a radio station and a program manager in person. That's right. And hand them stacks of copies of a 45, which I know half my audience probably has no idea what a 45 is, but that's another story. But things like that to now, to when you started in, in with Beyonce in the digital age, now it's so accepted 
But it's just interesting to look at the evolution. Yeah. I mean, this is supposed to be the power of technology, right? Marshall McLuhan, one great theorist, philosopher, you know, he'd say that technology is an extension of human behavior. It just extends human behavior, right? Will extension of the foot, glass extension of the eyes, clothes extensions of the skin. And, and if you follow that line of logic, you know, I think about social networking platforms are just extensions of our real life social networks. And the idea is that the technology extends what we normally do, but removing barriers, removing points of friction that allow us to do those things at a higher fidelity with more, with more prevalence around the way we do them. So removing gatekeepers, thanks to the social web, creates a, an, an avenue that you find a Justin Bieber-like object. Right, and then you find a title, the creator, an odd future. Like those mm-hmm. things, if it, if the normal guard were still in place, we wouldn't have those artists. You know, and so it creates new outlets for new artists to be heard, for fans to find unique and and, and, and novel voices, but also creates opportunities for established. Eight, uh, I say brands, but they are brands. Establish artists to do new and unique things, i.e., Beyonce dropping the Beyonce album, not through marketing communications, but through her community, the Beehive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's 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 really interesting. The like I said, the evolution, and now with AI, who knows how it's going to look in three to five years? <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I want to I want to pivot here to a, a recent HBR piece. I think it's recent that you wrote called. You need more than data under, to understand your customers. That's right. I, I don't even know where to start. Dude. I love, love, love this article. And in it, you make the case that even though there's more data available than ever before, marketers still struggle with truly understanding their customers. And you use a line that I so love to explain why the struggle goes on. And you say, because today's marketers have mistaken information for intimacy. That is gold. As a, as a writer myself, I'm telling you, I love, love, love that line. And I want to repeat it. It's because today's marketers have mistaken information for intimacy. Meaning you can, you can construe that a lot of different ways. But the best way, in my opinion, is information is the data. The intimacy is the emotion. Yeah. I'll go further say the information is the representation of what has happened. Mm-hmm. Intimacy is understanding meaning. What does it mean? And you only understand meaning through having very close proximity. You know, it's the only, it's the, it, it is the only way. I, I uh, in one of my classes, I put up a picture of a neighborhood at night. It's like just, you know, just past dusk. The street lamps are on, street lights are on. And then I asked the class, what does this mean? And someone says, Oh, it seems it looks like suburbs. Okay, well, what does it mean? Somebody look like it's late at night. Well, you're describing it. What does it mean? And then someone sort of sheepishly raised their hand. It says, "It means get home." I'm like, exactly. <laughs> it means get your butt home right now. So you can look at the things factually and say, "Oh, here's the information. It's dark out. It looks like a suburban residential area. The lights are on. All these things." But what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And the only way to understand meaning is to understand the minds in which the meaning is being constructed. Yeah, and when to to build off of that that analogy you just used in the article, you touched on the fact that brands are looking at the wrong KPIs, 
right? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to our, 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 the earlier point about like, you know, what's the role of culture and marketing? The role of culture markets get people to adopt behavior, right? That's where we're after. And we use sort of proxy metrics, though there aren't the behavior that we really want, right? And truthfully, a lot of this is because we haven't really identified what we really want. So for instance, one would say, well, look, I want people to buy my product. Totally. Well, if they don't know you, can you buy your product right away? They go, no, no, you can't do that. So what's the first behavior? We want people to go to our website. Great. Cool. Let's design for that. And all the metrics associated with going to your website, that'll be the way by which we would decide whether or not we were we, we were successful. Awesome. We have defined success. Now, how are we going to get them there? Well, first, we need to understand why aren't they going there now? Well, they don't know about it. Awesome. Okay, great. How do we get them to know about you? Now, just because they know about you doesn't mean they're going to go to your website, though. No, you're just right, Marcus. That doesn't mean that. So mm-hmm. what is it about who they are and how they see the world, their governing operating system, that we can get those people to go check out the website? Case in point, I think this was Bitcoin, right? Last year's Super Bowl. Was that Bitcoin? Oh, I can't. But I know what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. So those guys, which actually <laughs> says a lot, by the way, just from a brand perspective, says a lot, by the way. Exactly. Super Bowl 2022. We're right in the middle of the game. Commercial comes on and we see a blank screen and this thing just bouncing around, sort of like the, the old DVD screensaver thing just bouncing around and, and it does it for 60 seconds. Like it goes from being what's going on here to it's a QR code. That's what it is. QR code is bouncing. People take out their phones, click the QR code and it opens up and tells you to go to a website and for, for a chance to win a thing. So what did they do? They looked at the cultural behavior of watching Super Bowl spots. In most cases, during the, the commercials, people break wide to go to the bathroom and go eat. But not the Super Bowl. No, no, no. People stay and wait to watch. In fact, people watch the ads instead of watching the game. Right. So plugged in, watching the, the, the ad. So you have my attention. Now I see this thing that I'm like, what is going on here? I don't like, there's no sound. This is a QR code. And you're usually watching Super Bowl with other people. So what happens? Someone's brave enough to take out their phone and click the QR code. And when they do it, someone else does it. Someone else does it. You use the social proof of human behavior to get people to act in concert. And I think if I remember correctly, that app went from being 127th in the app store, shot up to number two. Right. Mm. Overnight. Unbelievable. From a behavioral perspective, crushed it based on the cultural characteristics of what happens when you watch the Super Bowl. Like what are the conventions, expectations of watching the Super Bowl and what we know of human behavior psychologically from a brand perspective? Not so great. Why is that? Year later, two marketing guys can't remember the brand at all. Hmm. Fascinating, but completely unsurprising at the same time. It just is. And you know that. I mean, it's not to sound overly simplistic, but I think that's the point. That's right. And and you are 1000% correct. It's not enough to get people to move. We got to get people to connect the meaning of what they're doing with the brand such that it's distinctive in that. Of course, it can only be fill in the blank brand. Because only fill the blank brand exactly. has authority and license to do a thing like that. 
Hey, I want to touch on one thing back to the article for a second. When you were still at Widen and Kennedy, you you did work with McDonald's. And I love this. You produce what you call a cultural Bible, right? And then you end up calling it a book of fan truths. Walk us through that. And then what are some things that any brand can learn from it? So what McDonald's were were brilliant in doing and, and quite brave is saying, we're not going to talk to just consumers. We're going to talk to the people who love us, the fans, people who self-identify as such, right? So forget the haters, forget the people who just on the fence, we want people who ride or die. So who are those people beyond their credit card information? Like who are they? And the team underwent ethnographic study to see who these people are, how they see the world, how they translate the world, and what are the norms of what it means to be a, a, a fan. And some of the truths that they found were sort of superficial, i.e., you know, your friend will ask for a fry even though they say they didn't want any fries. Fan truth, right? Or you ask for water but steal some Sprite. <laughs> Fan truth. Right? But the idea that, like, we wanted something that was that was specific to McDonald's fandom, something that was shared amongst McDonald's fan, but something that was really special. It was really unique. And the one that really cracked things open was the idea that no matter how big, how famous you are, everyone has an order. No matter how big, how famous you are, everyone has a McDonald's order. It's sort of a democratizer, if you will. And it's that insight, that that truth, that truth that created the platform that has now, according to Epi's, been awarded the most effective marketing campaign in the world. But led to a, a change in not just the way McDonald's goes to market, but how they see the market, how they mm-hmm. see see the world. So the, the fan truths that were specific, shared, and special. And by doing so, you find the only way to get there is to get close to who these people are. The intimacy. Exactly. So how can brands in general, regardless of industry – get more intimate with their yeah. customers. So the first thing is to figure out who you're talking to. Again, McDonald's didn't talk to everyone who eats McDonald's. No, no, no. We're talking to fans. And these people are not defined by their demographics. They're not defined by age, race, gender, household income, geography. The normal boxes that we put people in that don't accurately describe who they are. Instead, people we look at how people self-identify. Who am I? I'm a fan of McDonald's. Awesome. Because I'm a fan of McDonald's, I see the world a certain way and navigate the world a certain way, right? Just like any cultural subscription that one would have. So for a brand, the learning is, well, who am I targeting? Like who who am I after? Who are my people? Beyond their demographics, beyond their consumption behavior, who are they based on how they identify, right? And once we find who those people are, we identify who they are. And typically, they're the people who see the world the way we do, by the way. Find who those people are. Then we go, let's engage them. Let's activate them based on the things that are normal for people like them, the conventions and expectations. Because what happens is when we do that, they go, oh, you see me. They feel mm-hmm. seen. Like they go, You get it. You are one of us. And for McDonald's, it changed the, the frame from company talking to consumers to fans talking to fans because just like those fans mcdonald's are fans of themselves so like let's 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 totally nerd out on our fandom you know i was i was at a a masters of marketing in orlando uh, maybe a month or two ago and 
somebody showed up, uh, put up a stat in one of the uh, sessions that showed this huge dichotomy between what marketers think consumers want and what consumers actually say they want. Yeah. And I, I just like, give me a wall to bang my head against because I just don't get it year after year after year. And, and I would say to I, marketers, no one cares what you think consumers want. That's right. That's right. And I think it goes for a step further. It's that there's what marketers think consumers want. There's what consumers say they want. And it's what they actually want. Mm-hmm. And that third thing doesn't reveal itself through self-reported data. Exactly. That third thing comes from translation. Right? Yep. For instance, my wife would say to me, like, I want you to, to change the dishes. I keep asking you to change the dishes, keep asking you to change the dishes. So I go change the dishes and then she's still upset about something else. And I'm like, I did the thing you asked me to do. It's like, no, no, no. What she's really upset about is that she feels like I'm not participating exactly. enough. That's yep. And she can't articulate that. Yep. So she goes to the dishes. So when we ask consumers, what's that great, you know, Henry Ford quote that Steve Jobs would often requote, if I ask consumers what they wanted, they would have told me I wanted a faster horse. What they want is mobility. Yep. <laughs> they want us to, to get around, right? And then it's our job to to translate that. And this is what I love about, you know, being an academic, like having one foot in practice, one foot in academia, is that when we think about like how we do cultural research, cultural studies from an academic perspective, we use ethnographic means. We use these qualitative means. And the way you think about qualitative research, juxtaposed to quantitative research, that we do quantitative research, we use instruments like regressions to get to an answer. Like we run a regression on the data and yep. depending on the p-value, we go one way or the other, right? So in that way, the regression is the instrument. When we're doing qualitative research, we are the instruments. We, the researcher, we're the ones doing the translating. We're the ones observing the world and saying, oh, here's what that means. We, we are translating from what we see to what it means, Right. And that ability to translate to what we see to what it means requires a tremendous amount of intimacy and empathy. The ability to see the world through someone else's lenses, to to remove all your biases, talk about AI again, move all your biases, remove all your ethnocentrisms just for a moment to apprehend the world through the meaning-making lenses of someone who is not you. The step you just described is the epitome of the ultimate cliche Lost in translation. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's it. And that's where the breakdown happens. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes, it says that marketers use data like a drunk uses a lamppost, not for illumination, but for support. Mm, I and love that, that. We use that data to support sort of our own biases, to our own view. Well, we think consumers want this. Here's what the data says. Yeah. As opposed to using the data to illuminate, well, what does it mean? Very, very. I love that analogy, and I'm going to steal that. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I love that. Looking back on your career, man, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but is there one or more than one person who's had the biggest impact? Ooh. Oh, man. I feel like the biggest impact of my career, it's hard to say because I feel like I've had so many inflection points. Mm-hmm. What, what I'll do is instead of naming a person, I will give you like – uh, sort of a vessel, a box. Sure. And it's the people who saw something in me that no one else did. 
and maybe things I didn't see in myself. You know, when I got, I mean, I got went to the MBA program here at the University of Michigan, Ross School of Business. Like, I had no business being admitted to the school. Like, I was, I was writing love songs before I came to business school. <laughs> no business being in this school. But this woman named Sujin saw something in me that others didn't see. When I went to go work at Apple, I had no business being. There's nothing in my resume, nothing in my CV said that I was ready for that job. But Matt Fisher and Ed Swazinjar saw something in me that others did not. Right when I started running business, social running digital for Beyonce, no business having that job. But Matthew Knowles saw something in me that others did not. Right, going to I wasn't in advertising. I got I went into advertising after a ten year career in music. Right, Avi Savar saw something in me that others didn't see and put me into advertising. Steve Stout saw something in me that others didn't see. John Bond, like these people, just saw something. It was like, I'm going to give this guy a shot. Even in education, like I had no business teaching. Right? But a, a, you know, a woman named Laura Sawyer at, at Hyper Island saw something in me. And I feel like those people literally changed my life because they saw potential in me that other people didn't realize. And I already know the answer to this next question, but I'm, I'm sure you now in the position you're in apply the same thinking to give others a shot. I, I almost, when I was at Wyden and even before then, I would almost exclusively hire on potential only. Hmm. Cause I think that like that, like I, what I find, I, I look for the things that I can't teach and I, I can teach people how to do strategy. I can teach people how to, how to do research. I can teach people how to write and present. I could teach that, but I can't teach curiosity mm-hmm. and people who are curious. Oh my goodness. People are curious. They're going to learn the skills. They're going to find the thing out. So I always look for curiosity and people who are really ambitious, who have just potential. It's like, man, you've got the thing. And my job now is to sort of curate the space that's going to let you uh, grow into that, into, into that very thing. So that's kind of how I, how I hire. When I look at the people, especially at Widen, because I like... I mean, I grew that department, doubled that department while I was there, the strategy department there. And I feel like, you know, the the by and large, the, some of the people that I hired, I, I, I'm going to be studying from them in 10 yeah. years, right? Yeah. They're just, the, the talent is so raw and so pure and, and, and I just starting to sh- take shape. I mean, they're going to they're gonna change our industry and they, they may not be ready for the job right now today when they're hired, but they're going to grow into it. And in doing that, they're going to be able to do the same thing for someone else and pay it forward. You mentioned curiosity, and I would be totally remiss if I didn't tell you. When I was at Forbes years ago, I interviewed um, Brian Grazier, who's the producing partner of Ron Howard at Imagine Entertainment. And he had just written a book called A Curious Mind. Mm. And, you know, because one of their big movies at the time was called A Beautiful Mind. That's right. That he and Ron Howard had done. And... I'm sitting in Brian's office and this is a guy who's made it 50 times over. Mm-hmm. And he's nope, I never ever stop learning. I cuz and it's the same especially in our world. Think about our our fast things change in any world, let alone the world of marketing. Like yeah. the stuff we're saying today is going to be old in 3 days kind of thing. The, the the biggest value I got from my doctoral program was the ability to realize just how much I know nothing mm-hmm. that like I, I I've specialized in a very, 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 very small thing, like a, a minuscule 
iota size, a, a mustard seed size, like, you know, a mastery of something. But the world is vast. And that it teaches you to be humble. In fact, in academic writing, we always write from a humble stance. Mm-hmm. It suggests perhaps, maybe, it seems like one would think like that's how we write because we realize how much we don't know, especially when it comes to the social sciences. So for me, I remain in student posture always. In fact, I, I, I actually have said this many times that I am the dumbest person in the room all the time. And I'm well, glad you, to be that. Even in this room right now, the dumbest person in the room. Well, I don't know about that. Oh, yes, but, sir. Oh, yes, sir. But you know, you, you, know, you know the famous Steve Jobs quote about that, right? Like he, I don't know if it's him, but he's often credited as saying, he said, I never want to be the smartest person in the room. You can't be because you stop growing at that point. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, I, I want to keep learning because I feel like that's been, that's been the battery on the back of my career is learning. Exactly. Listen, being respectful of time, I got to end it with, you know, we're big, you know, you're from Detroit, Motown. And I know people can't see this, but behind me is my album wall that features the four tops, the temptations, two of my all time favorites, big Motown fan. And my favorite song of all time is called lean on me huh? by Bill Withers. Yeah. The, the words have always resonated with me, even especially as I've gotten into an adult, right? Cause it came out when I was a young kid. So my question to you, and I'm really going to put you on the spot. Mm-hmm. Is there a song? Is there a lyric that has more meaning than any other and why? Oh my goodness. Yeah. You really put me on the spot right now, but I tell you what comes to mind immediately. Yeah. There's an old hymn, hymnal that says, if I can help somebody as I pass along this way, then my living will not be in vain. And for me, that is the North star of my life. Like I, you know, talk about like Simon Sinek's why I believe that we're putting this earth to serve. In my prayer view, to serve God and serve each other. In fact, I would argue that we serve God by serving each other. So for me, if 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 I help someone along the way, help someone along the way, then my living would not have been in vain. Dr. Marcus Collins, I cannot thank you enough. We we literally have just met and it feels like I've known you. It's incredible. And one, there's gonna be a part two for sure somewhere down the road. And you and I are going to be do a lot of other things, I know for sure. So thank you again for your time today. My absolute pleasure, my friend. I, I One thing I've learned is that when you meet good people, you collect them. So consider yourself a part of the collection. I'm honored to be that. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. 